0: This is The Bigger Pockets Podcast, show 692.
1: I think the biggest fear was um, trusting people that I didn't really know. You know, I was I was meeting these people through Facebook groups or through, you know, different online platforms, and it's hard to trust, especially when you've never done a deal before um, what they're saying. And so I think... Being able to verify, and I, you know, like again, in, in your book, you kind of give resources on how to double check things and and how to circle back. I think that helped so much in terms of my trust in them.
0: What's going on, everyone? This is David Green, your host of the Bigger Pockets Real Estate Podcast. Here today with my co-host Henry Washington, as we interview Josh Goldstein, an out-of-state investor who has a pretty amazing story. And a very simple solution to problems we all have. We wanna make money in a way that we like more than our job, and we wanna be able to travel and have freedom and not be stuck in one location doing things that we don't like. Today's episode is awesome, and you're gonna learn a ton about long distance investing overcoming problems, analyzing properties, decorating them to maximize your return and more. Henry, I know I probably just took the big stuff, but was there anything I didn't (laughs) mention that you liked about
2: today's show? Yeah, no, you did take the big stuff. My favorite part of the show is just honestly, I love hearing stories of people that are doing things that uh, a lot of folks would say is difficult or impossible to do, right? So being able to stay positive when you get bad news and then giving not just not just saying, hey, I remain positive, but give me some practical steps on how he does that, which is super cool. And then you know, just changing your life, deciding to invest and then doing it when everybody thinks you can't. You live in an expensive market. Okay. I'll go buy a property somewhere else. Right. And then putting the action behind those steps to actually do that in a way that is financially beneficial. So I love it.
0: Absolutely. I, this is a very easy to listen to episode. Josh has a really cool story. I don't want to give it all the way, but make sure that you check this one out because you're going to love it. Before we get into the interview with Josh, today's quick tip is consider things to be grateful for. It's so easy to focus on things that, that are going wrong, and no one knows this more than me in business. I am frequently, as the leader, the person who has to deal with all the problems that nobody else wanted to or or chose to deal with, and it's easy to get upset. But there's always a solution to these problems, and if you take the stance of, I will look for the answer or the solution instead of, I will look for the reason to not have to solve it, You will often find that most of the problems or the obstacles that are stopping you from making progress are not nearly as significant as you think. Henry, any last words before we bring in Josh?
2: Yeah, I just kind of want to add into that. I uh, When I get in the same situation as you were just talking about, I sometimes have to remember to be grateful for the problems that I do have. Because yes, even though they may be infuriating, there are loads of people who would trade places with me in a heartbeat, who would love to have the problems that I have. And so I just try to keep that in mind and it helps me stay focused.
0: I bet you that you 10 years ago would have loved to have the problems that you today has versus the problems you had Darn, 10 years ago, right? Right, buddy? Isn't that funny? If you went back 10 years and said, hey, I can give you the life you have right now, then they'd be like, I hit the lottery. This is everything I wanted. (laughs) But we get used to it. And every day we wake up and we're like, oh, another problem I got to solve. My life sucks. That's exactly right. right. Love that perspective.
3: What's better than low money down? No money down. Now through Rent to Retirement, you can buy a brand new construction turnkey rental property for no money down. Wait, hold on. This can't be right. I need to double check with Zach, Rent to Retirement CEO. Oh, hey, Rob. Zach, how the heck are you selling turnkey rental properties for $0 down?
0: It's not that complicated, Rob. Rent to Retirement has new construction properties up to $20,000 below retail prices. We also have investor loans with rates as low as 3.99% and down payment options as low as 5% or sometimes even zero money down. You get all the cash flow, appreciation and equity for as little as zero money down. That's an infinite return.
3: Anyway, oh, wait, wait. let me get on this before we tell it to the whole bigger pockets audience.
0: Just head to renttoretirement.com. That's rent t o retirement.com or text r e i to
3: 33777. That's REI to 33777 to learn more about how you can get started investing with no money down today. Get your next new construction property at a steep discount or invest with no money down. Head to rentalretirement.com today. Passive income without the property headache? It's possible. Want to dive deep into commercial real estate, entrepreneurship, leadership, and the economy? Tune into the Walker webcast, hosted by the CEO of Walker & Dunlop, one of the largest commercial real estate finance and advisory services firms in the nation. As an unparalleled leader in commercial real estate, CEO Willie Walker frequently appears as an expert on major platforms like CNBC and the New York Times. He's even been on the Bigger Pockets podcast network, too. On the Walker webcast, you'll hear from guests like A-Rod, renowned economist Dr. Peter Linneman, and experts from Walker & Dunlop's capital markets, research, and investment sales groups. So fire up the Walker webcast on your favorite podcast app, or join live on Wednesdays to see Willie interact with his guests. Plus, you can always catch the replay on demand afterward. Stay ahead of the curve with Insights for Life from the Walker webcast. Learn more and subscribe to the Walker webcast at WalkerDunlop.com. Dot com slash pockets. And be sure to follow Walker and Dunlop on all your favorite social media channels too. That's walkerdunlop.com slash pockets. All right, let's bring in Josh. Josh Goldstein, welcome to the Bigger Pockets Podcast. How are you today?
0: I'm doing great. How about yourself? I am doing very good. I appreciate you waiting. I had to take a last-minute phone call there before we started recording. So you're very gracious and I appreciate that. Um, and Henry stayed awake the entire time. So I also appreciate that from you, Henry. I know listening to me talk can be very boring. But today we want to hear about Josh. So Josh, I understand you have a very interesting story of how you got started in real estate. So we're going to ask about your first deal. But before I do, take me back to where you were emotionally and what was happening in your life before you got that
1: deal. I I started in the entertainment industry and I went along working as I rose up and made more money. I was spending more money. I was kind of doing it now that I know wrong. Um and I got to a point where I was making decent money. I loved what I did. I didn't see anything changing. Um, until in 2015, I was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Um, and obviously everything changed from there. I, at the time was renovating our dream house that I'm living in right now. Um, and the doctors said, you're not gonna be able to, work for about a year, or you're not going to be able to work for a while. They didn't say a timeline. And uh, basically, I was in debt going and renovating this house, and um, I kind of freaked out, and I didn't know what I was going to do. I did have a great support system. My family and friends kind of rose up and helped me financially um, while I battled this thing, and I changed my mindset. I knew at a certain point I had to make a change and make money elsewhere and not just rely on my my actual job.
0: Okay, so you, I mean, life hit and the, the comfort level, the routine, the way you'd always known isn't gonna work anymore. You may not be able to work those hours you were working, those opportunities might not be there. I mean, if you think about it, most jobs in American works is, is within the framework of a W-2 environment, which means in general, you are servicing a lead, or a revenue source that somebody else has created. So if you're an actor in a movie, somebody else has secured the revenue for that movie. They've written a script. They've done all this stuff. They just need a person to play a role in the bigger picture. And that's every job, okay? If you're working at Walmart, if you're working at a landscaping company, in general, not many people work in sales. They're servicing sales somebody else has done, which means you got to serve at the pleasure of whoever your boss is. That's how this thing works. And when something happens to you like it did, you physically can't, meet the demands that this person would have. And you've got to be creative with finding a way to make money. So I I love hearing these stories of someone who didn't just give up and say, well, I guess that's it. I'm just going to be a burden on everyone else. You found another way to do it. So what were some of the concerns or fears you had as you started to realize, okay, I think I can make money investing in real estate, but obviously there's no safety net here like in a
1: W-2 job. The one thing I should say is I was actually freelance. So that was the big difference is I had a background in maybe not having the most secure amount of money. But as I worked in production for a long time, I'd felt like I was secure because jobs kept coming and I knew enough people that, you know, I, I was pretty uh, sure in 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 getting jobs over and over again. The one problem, even outside of me getting s- sick, was um, it was hard to take time off. I mean, if if I was taking time off to go on vacation with my family, I'd have to turn down a big job, lose that money, and then spend the money on going on vacation. And mentally, that was really tough for me. And I always felt like if I turn down jobs, what if it's a big commercial campaign and I lose multiple jobs from that, which I know does happen. Um, so there was a definitely fear based in that. So, you know, getting... During that year, I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, as many investors have, and it was kind of like a brick to the head. I mean, you know, it, it's something where I was always interested in real estate. I was always always interested in properties and values and looking at it, but I just never realized that I could make money off of it. Um, I don't know. I thought maybe you needed to have a top hat and a monocle to be a real estate investor, you know? Um, <laughs> I don't know. I still might buy that just so I have it, but... Um, um, during that year, after I read it, you know, I was very focused on healing and, and getting through the treatments. Um, so mentally I couldn't really do much more than that, but I knew once I recovered, um, that I needed to make a plan and actually change things. Um, during that time, I mean, I think it was the smart move. It's just, I, it, it takes so much time and effort and energy on healing and focusing on, my family and, and getting through this. And um, that's basically all I was able to do that, that year that I went through it.
2: Man, <laughs> I am smiling as I'm hearing you tell this story because it is very similar to my story outside of the illness. It's not an illness that, that, that wasn't my wake-up moment. Well, well, nothing like near what you had. My, my wake-up moment was I had a panic attack. Um, similar, similar thought process as you Prior to that is that I was starting to realize some life events were happening that were making me realize that the traditional way I was making money wasn't going to be enough to even live a, a a reasonable life nonetheless you know an extraordinary life and I had a wake-up call after a panic attack and I, I like that you mentioned like you had this mindset shift once you got sick. Um, That you needed to find a way to make money. But I would imagine that that mindset shift was around like, because you have to have a mindset shift about like healing and getting better, as well as a mindset shift around what I need to do to change my financial landscape. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, were, were those two different mindset shifts or did your positive outlook on healing help you change your mind about investing in how actually achievable it is. Cause I think a lot of people are in a place where they know they want to invest, but just saying change your mindset, like it's hard for them to grasp that. Like what about these mindset shifts made that easier for you?
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess I should start. I, I am naturally a positive person.
2: Um, but I have to say my wife is even,
1: you know, way <laughs> way above me on in that scale. So when I got diagnosed, um, I was actually in the hospital. She was home with the kids. And I woke up, um, from some painkillers and, uh, there are two doctors sitting there and they told me that I had pancreatic cancer. And, you know, I think this actually relates a little bit towards my job as a, as a producer where problems come to me all the time. Obviously this is a different problem that I've never, I never thought in a million years I'd have to deal with, but, um, I took a breath and, and, and I paused and I said, okay. And the doctors looked at me again and said, Do you understand what we're saying? And I said, Yes. And so I said, I wanted to call my wife, and I did. And her response uh, from the get go was, Okay, let's figure this out. So that was the baseline of our mindset going into this. And I feel like, you know, it is something that I did in my production career, where, you know, when problems come, instead of freaking out, screaming, whatever, take a breath figure out how to solve it because screaming isn't going to actually solve it. Um, So, you know, throughout that year, we, we kept that going and I feel like that mindset helped tremendously because it it relates to so many things in life, but real estate is one of them. Problems come up all the time. It's how you deal with it, how you solve it.
2: One hundred percent. And I love that you're saying like, she said, okay. Let's figure this thing out, right? And you're right. The mindset is very similar because I feel like success in investing, especially if you've never done a deal or if you've only done a couple of deals, like you may not know the exact steps or have them all laid out in front of you to know exactly the play that you're going to run. I'm going to do step A. That's going to lead me to step B and step C. And you don't know them all ahead of time. One of the things that helped me be successful when I started off investing was that I just decided I was going to figure out, figure it out. I didn't decide I was going to go learn every single step and then figure and then take some action. I just decided I was going to figure this out. It's this, it's a similar mindset to what you had about be, uh, getting healthy again, right? You said, OK, we will figure this out. I have no idea what the next step is, but I know I'm going to stay positive about it. And I know that I'm going to figure out all the things that I need to do and you solve the problem that's in front of you, man. That's, that's, that's super inspiring. Well, and it's funny.
1: I, you know, I've heard not just from you that that similar things have happened in people's lives that change their mindset. And obviously pancreatic cancer is an extreme version, but that thing, whatever it is can relate to so many people um, because it, it could be something little, it could be something big. It doesn't matter. It's just that little switch making you think i I need to do this differently and you know i think that helps a ton and and it relates to a lot of people
0: did you have any nagging little thoughts or ideas before the diagnosis came where you were kind of like yeah i probably this isn't going to work forever or like you mentioned that's such a good point if i want to take a vacation i actually have to pay for it twice because I have to pay for the vacation, but then I lose the money that I would have made at work. We call that opportunity costs in economics. And it's something that people don't factor into, uh, their, their financial picture is when you have a job that you have to be in a location to earn money. When you take a vacation, you also lose the money you would have made working. So there was some inner, like, you know, just ideas that were in your head saying, Hey, this isn't great. Do you feel like the diagnosis was the spark that jump started this? Like, do you think you would have got there eventually? Or was it just, you had no idea at all until this news hit?
1: I think there was something in me that, that knew something. I mean, you know, in terms of research for real estate, I, you know, I watched HGTV and like the flip shows and stuff like that. But again, it was, you know, it's more entertainment, but like I said, I'd always been drawn to real estate and design and, and locations and values and stuff like that. I just never stupidly realized that I can make money off of it. No,
0: I appreciate you saying that.
1: Yeah, no. So I, I just feel like I, um, I I knew I needed something. I just didn't know what that was until I had my uh, diagnosis and and read Rich Dad Poor Dad and everything came way more clear.
0: Yeah, that's. I mean, that book is like the portal from one world to another for so many people. <laughs> is that and it's funny. Like it's good to hear this because uh, there was a time I didn't know you could make money investing in real estate. Like, and when I got into it, it was two thousand and nine, like late two thousand nine. It was not considered a thing you did to make money. It was considered a thing you did to lose money. That's all everybody talked about is like, you're a real estate investor. That's the dumbest thing ever. Like, why would you, it was almost mocked at the time. So it's good to hear this. Like we have a big listener base that's new. They're like, what? You can buy a duplex and get $500 a month. It's, it's not known to everyone out there. So I appreciate you sharing that part of the story. Now, how did your first deal work out? Did you know what you were going to do? Did you fall into it? Bass backwards. Like, how did you end up buying your first property?
1: So, I was definitely in analysis paralysis for a couple of years. And, you know, after I healed and was working like crazy to get out of debt, I, I really dove into bigger pockets with podcasts, webinars, books, everything. I, I just lived and breathed it as much as I could. Um, but the one thing that I did is this is all theoretical. So, I, knew, I didn't know any of this actually worked, it was all in theory. So, um, I looked at different markets. I tried different, um, I I actually made some offers on properties and, and backed out of them over, you know, as little as $500, which I'm embarrassed to say right now, but I thought in my head, I'm sticking to my guns. I, these are my numbers and I am not going to waver one bit. Um, and so, you know, when I first started, I thought that was the right thing. I think that what really changed that is I actually listened to, um, one of your guys's episodes, uh, with Whitney Hutton and she was talking about turnkey rentals. And it was something that I had never really wanted to do because I wanted to capture everything. I wanted the equity. I wanted, you know, I wanted the whole shebang. All. I wanted it all. Um, but I realized as she broke it down, at least starting off, this is such a good, it's like training wheels. It's, you know, like I had purchased a house or two houses before just to live in. So I kind of knew the process of that, but, um, the investing side of it, it was still so foreign to me. And this was just a very low barrier to entry. And so, um, that's what really got me into it. I I actually reached out to her and she gave me a property management, um, recommendation and they started uh, sending me turnkey deals.
2: I think that's super cool because it's it's starting like this whole story starting to piece together and um it's Because what happens a lot of the time is people say, well, I want to be an investor and they start looking and researching, right? And they get overwhelmed in analysis paralysis and then they never actually take any action. A couple of things that you did, which were super cool, is you made some offers. Even though you backed out of the offers, actually analyzing the property and making the offer is a form of action, right? And so you're like training your mind to say, all right, we're doing this. You were like double dutching your way in and, you know, back out, Right. Um, But the super cool part is like you made a decision when you got sick that you were going to figure a way out. And when we make decisions like that, we tell our brain, hey, I'm going to figure this thing out. And right. That doesn't mean you're going to know exactly what to do next once you make the decision. But you've told your brain to listen for it. And then what happened was as you started to research or listen to other podcasts, you heard someone say something and you went, hey, that's the thing that's the i think this is what i can do right and then then you dive into the research on that part and then you take the action and i think that's what a lot of new investors need to hear it's not that you're just going to start investing and the plan's going to perfectly unfold it's okay but if you can truly make that decision and mean it right you'll start to you'll start to hear and see the things that are going to guide you down the path that will get you started and i think that's that's a That's a good realistic way for people to think about investing, right? Make the decision, even if you don't know how, even if you don't know you have, you know, I don't have the down payment or whatever the obstacle may be, just tell yourself you will figure it out and be sincere about it and then immerse yourself in the information in the culture around other other investors and the how starts to reveal itself, man. That's just, that's just really cool. I think, um,
1: also within those two years of me being in analysis paralysis, um, things did shift. Cause you know, when you're first starting to learn, I was like, okay, let's say I buy a single family rental. Um, and I start cash flowing, you know, 150 bucks, 200 bucks after all expenses. Um, it's not a ton of money. And then it's really overwhelming to think about, gosh, how many of these houses do I actually need to make a dent in my life? Um, and the other, my other question was, well, how am I going to get money over and over and over again to buy these houses? And then I found Burr Method and really dove into that. And that really sparked some interest and made so much sense to me. And so from that, you know, I moved into, you know, researching that. That's when I started making some more offers and, and backing out over minuscule amounts. But I feel like my... Uh, where, where I was going just was shifting as I was learning more. I, I was adding more tools to the belt so that even though without the practice of it, um, I just knew more and was able to sp- talk the talk and, and kind of progress from there. All
0: right. So you had several deals you backed out of, you mentioned. Now, was this to buy your first deal or was this later in your career that that was happening?
1: First, yeah, okay. very
0: first. One. And that was basically just like a defense mechanism, right? I don't want to get taken advantage of. So if anything's wrong and that's when you're new, that's normal, right? We all have things that we look back on our first day of school or, you know, your first time doing something where you were ultra hyper aware and you look back and you're like, okay, I was overreacting, but that, it's, that's just how life is. You don't know what to expect. So eventually you did buy one. Tell us about the deal you bought, why you liked it and how you decided to move forward.
1: So um, it was a turnkey deal. Um, but it actually, I call it my accidental burr. Um, it was a three bedroom house in Kansas city, Missouri. It was $70,000. they sent it out in December, 2019 and it said holiday special. Um, and they said that the comps were around 90,000. And so I looked on my own and I agreed. I'm like, yeah, it does look like it's around 90,000. So I went forward, um, already had a renter in there for $800. A month and um, they fixed some things through the inspection. And by the time we closed, you know, I just started getting checks. And um, uh, one thing that did happen is my lender actually backed out two weeks into the process. And so I had a choice of backing out or um, using a line of credit to actually pay for it in cash. And so I decided to move forward and I basically paid cash, you know, with someone else's money. Um, and a month afterwards I went to go refinance and without doing anything to it, uh, it appraised for, I think, $116,000 and I pulled out, uh, $74,000, which was my initial amount plus closing costs.
0: What was the reason that the lender backed out?
1: Um, because it was through a property management company. They said that the underwriter didn't feel. they they didn't feel like it was a traditional deal, and so they felt um, not comfortable about it. And um, so I, I didn't question it that much. I mean, the property management company did have a real estate license, so in retrospect, I probably could have pushed back and said, "Well, here's their license. Here, this is the reasons why it's legit." Um, but I felt like it was all happening so fast that I just needed to react. And luckily, I did have that cushion to be able to, um, you know, still make it move forward.
2: So there's a lot to unpack there. First of all, having the wherewithal after you've made a couple offers and backed out over 500 bucks, and then boom, you do your first deal and your lender backs out two weeks into it, and you stuck with that deal. Man, that's. <laughs> man. So I'd assume you'd had you, you 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 were you felt more committed then, right? You felt more trusting of those numbers, but I think there's a lot of people that may be interested in turnkey as an option. You would mentioned that you did your own research, right? So tell us a little bit about like how you felt comfortable buying it by doing your own research? What did your own research look like? Because a lot of these turnkey companies will tell you what the value is. But if you're brand new, right, how do you then take that information and go try to discern that for yourself so that you feel like you're actually buying a good deal?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I basically looked at the neighborhood, I even walked on um, Google streets to kind of see what it was like. I looked at Zillow, I looked at recent sales, I looked at, listings that were active, um, and try to compare to my house and the square footage and the bed count and the bathroom count, um, just to see what it looked like. And, and, um, it seemed like it was really solid and yeah, it is a funny one that I felt like I was committed and didn't back out and, you know, pulled out a much larger chunk versus, you know, I thought I was going to be putting $14,000 into this as a down payment. Um, And it was kind of a blessing in disguise because I was able to refinance much quicker because of it. And, um, but, but yeah, I think it goes to me looking at the numbers and seeing how good of a deal this actually was. And especially for a first deal, I just felt like the, the, I had looked at other deals that they had sent and nothing was
2: close to this. Also. Uh, and, and I think that's great. I 100% totally agree. Like, that's a phenomenal way to do it. It use the resources you have access to. We all have access to Zillow. We have access to Realtor. We have access to be able to look at some of these things. There's valid information in there to be able to do some level of your own analysis. Um, the, the other thing to think about is like, you don't live in St. Louis, right? You said you did the, you did the walking on Google Maps. And so like, what made you I'm sorry. Yes. I'm sorry. You don't live in Kansas City, right? So, Kansas City, yeah. So, what made you comfortable with Kansas City as a market overall to then go ahead and buy a property there?
1: Um, Well, someone that we might know uh, wrote a book about long distance real estate investing, and that book really broke down um, any fears that you have. And to this day, I've actually never been to Kansas City, Missouri. And, you know, I feel like the only reason for me to go at at this point is maybe to meet the people that I'm working with and just just to get a more of a personal feel for that. But other than that, um, I I, I felt like at a certain point when I was starting to make these relationships with local people, the boots on the ground, I needed to trust them because if I wasn't able to trust them, then this wasn't going to work at all. And so, of course, I would do what I can to kind of verify the things that they were saying, like the comps going on Zillow, you know, walking through the neighborhood uh, virtually, stuff like that. But um, it just kind of solidified what they said and kind of proved that they were being
3: truthful.
0: So were you nervous about doing this before the book? Did the book help get over some of the hurdles or were you already committed doing it and the book maybe just provided a framework for the right way to go about
1: it? I think the book, I mean, that was during my analysis paralysis time period, but it was another one of those notches that solidified because you know I I live in the Los Angeles area everything's very expensive and maybe that was part of the reason why I never knew that I could be a real estate investor is because I felt like oh well I have to buy it down the street and um, I can't afford that so I just won't do it Um, but it's like the book was great at just breaking down every concern and how to walk through and actually make a deal happen without ever going to a place Um, so I think that it was invaluable in that, in that sense. All right. So when
0: it comes to long distance investing, what was something that you maybe were afraid was going to be the case or you thought was going to make it difficult? And then once you did it, you look back and you're like, oh, that wasn't that big of a deal or it's different than what I thought it would be.
1: Um, I think the biggest fear was, um, trusting people that I didn't really know. You know, I was, I was meeting these people through Facebook groups or through, you know, different online platforms, and it's hard to trust, especially when you've never done a deal before, um, what they're saying. And so I think being able to verify and I, I you know, like again in, in your book, you kind of give resources on how to double check things and and how to circle back. I think that helped so much in terms of my trust in them. You know, that's a. There needs to be a word in the English language for this concept. I don't
0: know why it's such a hard thing, but frequently when you're a business owner, which you are if you're buying a property, right? It's just a, you mentioned the word mindset. Mindset comes up so much. When you're the person in charge of the endeavor and you have to solve the problems, you think differently than when you're the W-2 person in the business and you're like, it's my job to just do a thing, right? Frequently people will come up to me and they'll say, we have a problem. Uh, This just happened. We, We can't do it. I mean, like literally we're going through in my own portfolio. I'm I created a spreadsheet to track all the properties I have, what I owe on those properties, what the payment is. Like I'm I'm systemizing everything so I can ultimately share this spreadsheet with other investors and it tracks like, hey, these are all the properties you have, these are the offers that you've written, these are the ones you have in contract. And uh, somebody on my team was saying, for months we've been trying to find your login information for this bank on these properties you bought like eight years ago, can't be done. And it's literally been four months I've been waiting. And so I get on the website and there's a chat option and I click the chat option and I talk to a person and within like 30 seconds I'm in there. And I was like, I am not the smartest person on this team, okay, I'm looking at it like, how can I do it? And they're looking at it like, oh, I can't do it, so it's not my job, I don't have to do it anymore. There's some magic that happens when you get shifted into this position of I have to figure this out and you become a superhero. I don't, I'm not saying I'm a superhero. In this case, the superpower is thinking to use the chat option instead of just trying to reset a password when it's not working. Can you talk a little bit, Josh, about like when when you're afraid to invest long distance, you can think of all the reasons that it's a bad idea and you don't take action, you get analysis paralysis. But when it has to happen you start finding solutions you start living this empowered life you start to feel good about yourself you start to gain confidence because stuff that to other people seems impossible to you isn't really that difficult like do you feel like almost a different person now that you're investing in real estate and you're having to come up with solutions where others are are just seeing
1: impossibilities absolutely i mean people that you know i know that are not in real estate um they don't understand how i own you know, a handful of units in a state that I've never been to or a city that I've never been to. Um, and I feel like my production back- background, my producer background is about solving problems. And every job that I do in that world, you know, people come up with an idea, a script, a, a commercial, whatever it is, problems are different every single time. So I feel like because of that, me being able to solve those problems. And, you know, I've been doing it for a long enough time that I usually know someone that can pull something off. But a lot of times, there's sometimes they surprise me and they're like, look, we want to do this. And I'm, you know, nod my head, take a breath and then think about it and figure out how to solve it. And so I think that skill really relates to any issues that do come up with real estate as well. And I think you know, taking a breath and looking at it logically. And like you said, you did the chat button. Um, I mean, it triggered me a little bit because I'm going through and organizing all my logins as well. Um, (laughs) And, you know, but I've I've done that. It's like, sometimes I'm like, well, I'm not going to be able to recover this password, but how can I get a new one? Because they obviously want me to have access to this. Um, they're not cutting me off in that sense because this is, they want me to keep paying and I have auto pay. So, um, if my banking information changes or something, they want me to have this. So it's just a matter of figuring out how to get there.
0: Yeah. And the way I've tended to look at this is your heart will be the rudder that steers the decisions that you make. If there's fear in your heart, you will find the reasons to say, this is impossible. This can't be done. I'm not going to take action. If there's a drive and ambition in your heart, you'll probably find the answers for you being diagnosed with pancreatic cancer with your family's future on the line. You're not, you're getting over the fear that at one point kept you stuck in analysis paralysis, right? And all of a sudden thinking like clicking the chat button, it's not, you don't, I don't need to be Elon Musk to think of a solution like that. I just had a strong drive to get logged in. Whereas the people on my team had a strong drive to get that off their plate, say, I can't be done. I'll go do the next thing that I would rather be doing. And so I'm frequently talking to people who are having a hard time, like getting started or scaling or whatever they're doing, and asking, like, what's in your heart? Right? Are you just, is this not for you? Are you terrified? You don't want to do it? Uh, Are you looking for an answer to solving life's problems that real estate was never meant to solve? If you're not good at your job or you're not good with money, man, you're going to get worse with money when you get into real estate. Because things go wrong, like you've mentioned, you know, like there may be some other things you got to fix before you jump into this. I've just the older I get, not that I'm an old man or anything, but I'm starting to recognize the position of your heart, what is in there, plays such a big role in where things end up. Henry, you're smiling right now, like you've got something you want to add on
2: to this. Do you want to elaborate there? No, I I I 100 agree. I'm smiling because you're right. It's 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 what's in your heart, and that drives your decisions. And not only does it drive your decisions, but when you when you think about kind of putting yourself in a position to uh because c- that's essentially what you're doing. When you're when you're going with when you're leading with your heart, you may not know what the next uh exactly step it is that you need to take, but you know uh in the grand scheme, this is the direction that I'm looking to go. And so you will start to think of creative ways to push yourself in that direction. Um and I'm just a big proponent of uh, you know, you, you, you steer the ship with the heart and you're 100% right, man. That, that, so that's always going to make me happy.
3: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. All of us wish we had more time in the day, but if time was unlimited, what would you spend it doing? Having trouble? Therapy can help. With therapy, you can find what matters most to you and do more of it. Therapy can help you discover what you really want out of life and what your true priorities are. It's more than just talking about trauma or tough times. It can help empower you to accomplish more with less stress and more clarity. The best place to try therapy? BetterHelp. BetterHelp is entirely online. That means it fits your schedule and flexibility, and you don't have to drive through traffic to see your therapist. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with the licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com/bp today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, h e l p.com/bp. You might think you want real estate, but that's not true. What you really want is passive income. With new investors struggling to find deals or get enough money to buy them and veteran landlords tired of the constant tenant phone calls, is there a better alternative? Actually, there is. Fund your digital wallet with at least $500. Select from 6, 12, and 24-month short notes with annualized return rates up to 9%. Then sit back and let your monthly returns roll in. Join today by visiting connectinvest.com/vp. connectinvest.com/vp. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Now, can you tell us, Josh, we see how you got that first deal. Um,
0: what does your portfolio look like now? Where have you scaled to?
1: Um, I'm up to 20 doors. Um, 11 of them are short-term rentals and the other are long-term rentals. um, of those 11, six of them I am renovating, so only five are live right now, and then the other six are uh, major res- renovations. And how are you managing this many properties, especially nine short-term rental doors? So um, I am, on the long-term, I do have a property management company for that. So once I get it stabilized and set, it's it's quite easy to just answer some emails to them every once in a while. Um, all the short-term rentals I am managing myself. Um, I have systems in place where, you know, automated mes- messaging, um, price strategies, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I did just recently hire a virtual assistant so, to help me with messaging um, so that when my these renovations are done and I more than double my uh, short-term rental portfolio, I don't, you know, drive it into the ground without you know, having enough help.
2: That's awesome, man. Tell us too, like where in the country, the short-term rentals are and versus your long-term rentals. And, um, how did you like, what made you go? This is the market where I want to do short-term versus long-term.
1: Well, the majority of them are in Smoky mountains, Tennessee. And so I think what spawned me to that was listening to Avery Carl on bigger pockets. And I reached out to her And uh, we had a great conversation. Everything she said just made so much sense. And so I jumped in and um, found a deal that was two cabins uh, on two acres of land. Um, It was way more expensive than my Kansas city place, but it was $635,000. And I wound up using uh, my HELOC for the down payment. And we closed March of 2020, the day that everything shut down. <laughs> um, yes. And so it forced me to do several things. Um, I was planning, I I, pl- I went out there for the inspection. That was the first time I'd ever been to Smoky Mountains. But I was planning on going back as soon as I closed to help set it up, change the linens, um, swap out a couple of things here and there, whatever. Um, and the day that I was signing, um, I didn't even know if I was going to be able to Get to a notary i don't know what was going to be open so um i did close and took my time interviewing cleaners uh prop, maintenance people stuff like that and what it did was it forced me to use them to set up my property remotely and i thought i had to be there um but it worked and bookings started coming in. And so, you know, I went pretty heavy in the Smoky Mountains. I have nine units there. Six of them are the ones that are being renovated. But I did invest one cabin in Idlewild, California. And the reason why we did that is because we wanted something that maybe we could use every once in a while. It's a couple hour drive from where I live. Um, And then another one at Big Bear, California. And that for the same kind of reason, it's a good market, but we wanted a potentially use it every once in a while as well.
2: So it sounds like you're picking short-term rental locations that have a long-standing history of being short-term rental locations even prior to Airbnb being a thing, which I think is a is a smart move when you're looking to get into the short-term rental game. And then in your long-terms where are most of those in the in the uh, Kansas City market?
1: Yeah, they're they're in Kansas City. I mean, I do have two uh, mobile homes that are on a property that I own in um, Smoky Mountains, Tennessee. So I count those as a couple doors because um, I have two tenants in there. Um, but but yeah, the majority of my units are in Kansas City, Missouri for a long-term.
0: What are your concerns with the short-term rental market becoming oversaturated? This is something we hear a lot of people talk about. It, it speaks to that fear. Thing like, ah, everybody's getting into short term rentals. I'm not going to be able to get the bookings I've been getting. You know, there's, it's obviously a volatile market. You get changes with municipalities, you get regulation that comes in, Airbnb changes their algorithm, the whole thing gets turned on its head. It's clearly a market that is not set it and forget it, which is, you know, it's, I bring it up because for so long we've, Hyped real estate investing is passive income. The idea is it's just money that comes to you, okay? And at some point in life, that might have been partially true, but with the level of competition that we have now, there's nothing passive about this. It's just, I was working this job and now I'm working this job and it's it's better. I think all of us would agree it's a better way to work and it's there's more freedom to it and it involves more creativity but it's still a form of work and there is still some risk so what are some of the things that concern you about the short-term rentals that you have and how are you mitigating that risk
1: yeah this is actually coming from someone who just purchased what 15 short-term rentals and how short of a time david
0: well yeah that's exactly why we're talking about
1: this (laughs) (laughs) um I think it still comes down to the core basics of real estate and if you buy it right. And my, my strategy with short-term rentals is improving them. Um, I like the value add strategy. I love design. Um, it actually gave, uh, my wife an excuse to buy some really cool design furniture and decor that we don't even have at our house, um, and put it in a place that we could make money off of it. Um, and yeah, I mean, there are going to be ups and downs with short-term rentals in terms of occupancy and rates and and whatnot. Um, I think people still need to go on vacation. So whether it's a lot of people are going on vacation or less people are going on vacation, if you buy it right and you analyze it right conservatively, you're going to be okay. Now, how much you're actually making from that is going to vary. But if, to me, if I could cover my costs and then make some profit off of it, that's really the main goal. And then hopefully over time, all of this stuff is gonna appreciate anyways. Henry, what about you?
0: You're involved in several different kinds of real estate endeavors out there in Arkansas, bit of a connoisseur of real estate, kind of dabbling in many different things here. What concerns do you have with the short-term rental market specifically?
2: yeah, I mean the the, the normal concerns every people everybody has. My 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 main concern is well, the speaking specifically, right? So I have short-term rentals but they're all here in my local market and I well, I say I have them I have 3 of them. And my concern or the thing that I'm keeping an eye on is the reason I bought in the market uh, or turned the properties into short-term rentals that are in the market that I'm doing it in is because it is a travel destination for both corporate and for leisure. But there's not a lot of hotel options. There's just a shortage of places for people to stay in conjunction with the amount of people that come here and need a place to stay for a short period of time. And so it's, uh, it's currently uh, what I would call a, a safe option. But I am paying attention to What's happening in the future. And so if you stay connected to your local cities and municipalities and you um, are connected to the people in the city council meetings and following them on social media, people think you got to do a lot of you don't there's there's so much technology now you don't have to be in city council meetings to understand what's going on in your local market you can follow the cities and municipalities on social media on facebook on instagram they post a lot of what's coming through those channels and so you can stay connected that way and i am starting to see that a lot of the uh families and institutions that have money around here are building um, hotels right to solve for that issue and so my concern or the thing i'm keeping an eye on is when are these hotels supposed to be completed how many are they building how many rooms are going to be in them right so that i can try to understand if it makes sense for me to continue to grow a short-term rental portfolio on this market because my two cents or my my thought process goes to if i am a wealthy person or persons and i want to build hotels and I have that kind of money. I probably have influence as well over the city and maybe some of the rules and, lo- and, and laws. And so I would I would assume there may be some sort of regulation that comes down the pike once those hotels are up. So those are some of the the market specific things I'm concerned about and keeping an eye on.
0: Josh, what what about the future? Where do you see yourself investing from this point going forward, and what types of asset classes?
2: I do like
1: the hospitality. Um, area, which is short-term rentals. And um, I've actually um, joined with several other investors and we are creating a fund to buy short-term rentals and small boutique hotels. And so this is new to me, um, but some of the people in the group have done several boutique hotel deals. Um, I guess five of the six cabins that I'm renovating, that was my first commercial deal because it was five cabins at one time. And the renovation costs were built into that. So that's my limited um, knowledge about commercial loans and and that kind of world. But I'm learning a ton. And the people that I partner with are are great at what they do. And what I could bring to it is finding where that market is and what the experiences that people are looking for and what we could put into those short-term rentals or hotels to make the guest experience great. The last question I want to ask you about is with your story with the nest lock that ran
0: out of batteries. Tell us what happened in that situation with your tenant.
1: Yeah, um, so I am in California, which is three hours behind uh, Smoky Mountains, Tennessee, but this guest, for some reason... Didn't arrive till 2 a.m. or 3 a.m., which even for me that's past my bedtime. I go to sleep early, um, but for some reason I was up um, and I was about to go to bed, and I get this um, message saying um, we can't get in, which is never something that you want to hear, especially that late in a market. How am I going to solve this? Um, and I had to call a maintenance person that I was using quite regularly, so I felt like we we became pretty friendly, um, about five times to wake him up and have him go over there. Um, what I realized and something that I have in my process now is first of all, I have someone checking my batteries once a month because I never want to be in that situation again. Second of all, it was a nest lock. So, uh, what I realized is you could take a nine volt battery, put it at the bottom and it gives it enough power to unlock it. And then you could solve the problem later. So I actually have lock boxes on all of my cabins there that I keep a 9-volt battery in. And in an emergency, I could give the guest that code to get the 9-volt to get in temporarily and then actually fix it when it's, you know, working hours and not have to wake up a poor maintenance man
2: that, that was dead asleep at 3 in the morning. That is the physical manifestation of never again, never again. I, learned, I definitely learned
1: my again? lesson. <laughs>
2: Awesome. Before we transition to the next part of our show, I heard you mention a few times you kept saying, hey, you just need to breathe or I just had to breathe and give this some space and think about the problem. Right. And, and you know, I interpret that as like, taking a step back, right? Removing your, removing your, you know, your personal feelings out of it and looking at the situation logically. um, Can you talk to us a little bit about like some of these steps that you've implemented into your life to deal with both real estate and health and how that's helped you?
1: Yeah. uh, You know, especially being in the short-term rental business, um, I'd say the majority of my guests are great, but there are those guests that really can, you know, get, get, get to you. And so when they write those messages or send you something that your immediate response is infuriating and, and you want to just strike back right away. Um, I've learned through production really, because so many problems do come up that before I send that message back, before I send that text back, whatever it is, I take a beat. I might have to walk away my, from my phone for a couple of minutes until I get control of myself. I mean, this is something I even implement into my children where I say, go get control of yourself and come back and then we'll talk, you know, and, and sometimes I do it myself. If I, you know, in my family, it's like, I feel myself getting worked up. I say, I have to give myself a minute and I walk away and then come back. And then you can actually deal with the actual problem and be a little more logical about it. And that goes for anything, you know, anything, part of life. It's like, just take a beat. Don't be so reactionary. Don't be so emotional because that's not always the best uh, response that you could do to solve the problem.
2: And you know how many times I allow myself to write the message. I just want, to, like, I just, I just got to bang on the keyboard for a minute and give the keyboard a piece of my mind. And then I delete all the stuff and then, and then come back a little later. But that, that, I, that is a, that is a wise approach. Instead of banging on the computer, I
1: think I'm in my head going through all those responses, you know, and that's like part of my minute or two that I'm like, okay, I got those out now let's actually deal with this and, you know, what's, what's gonna solve this and, and, you know, how should I actually respond?
0: All right, well, this has been fantastic, Josh. I love hearing your story. I've loved hearing about how you're taking on the challenges that are coming your way. You know, when you were talking about that nine volt thing, it brought up the whole W2 versus 1099, I gotta figure this out mindset. I can absolutely see somebody who doesn't care about finding the solution saying, oh, the, the battery's dead. There's nothing that we can do. The guests can't get in. I guess they got to sleep in their car, right? Like I just, it can't, there's nothing that can be done versus you probably went and Googled how to open a nest uh, lock when the batteries are dead. And there's something on there about this nine volt battery trick. And then you could have looked up the closest place to go buy a nine volt battery and texted the guests and been super apologetic. Like, look, go do this. We'll get you in there. There's always a solution. It's just, are you looking for the solution or are you looking for the reason to not have to look for the solution? It just depends where your heart's at. So thank you for sharing that. That's been great. The next segment of our show is the Deal Deep Dive. At this segment of the show, Henry and I are going to take turns firing questions at you as we dive deep into one particular deal that you've done. Question number one, what kind of property
1: is this? This is an A-frame cabin. How did you find it? Uh, it was actually on, I found it originally someone posted it on Instagram and then I looked up the listing. So it was on the MLS, but uh, there is a community of A-frame lovers um, all over the world. And I do follow some of those accounts. And this popped up in a market um, a couple hours away from me. And that's what spawned me to 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 go check it out and have something a little bit closer that I could use.
0: Those A-frames are very cool. I bought uh one of them myself in the Smoky Mountains and like the pictures just really stand out for some reason when you're looking at that A-frame cabin. Absolutely.
1: All right, question number 3. How much was it? Uh so it was listed for 300,000. Um this was June of 2020 where everyone was still very unsure about the real estate market. Um it had been sitting there. I offered 250, they came back at 275 and that's where we closed.
2: Well, fantastic. You are a savant, because the next question was, how did you negotiate it?
1: Yeah, I think it's just because it was sitting there. Um, and, you know, being still the beginnings of COVID, no one knew where the real estate market was going to go. I at least had those Smoky Mountains cabins that were up and running, and I saw how valuable it was. So I just wanted to jump on and get as many as I possibly could. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think it worked to my advantage for sure when we made that offer, low ball offer.
0: Okay, and how did you fund it?
1: So I use my HELOC um, actually to purchase the whole thing um, and and do renovations because um, again, I had another lender back out on me. <laughs> um, it was something where I, you know, I got the lender from my real estate agent And I thought that there was just something off and, and, you know, it was something where they would ask me for a certain document and I would send it, you know, within an hour or so. And then two days later they would ask me for the same document. So I would send it again. Um, And I just felt like there's something that's going to be missed. And we got down to the wire. And so in my head, I needed a backup plan. Uh, Got down to the wire and they're like, well, you know, this isn't going to work. And they, they basically pulled the rug from out of me under me, or we had to go back, extend um, the contract even more and potentially lose it and uh, provide way more paperwork. So um, I use my HELOC uh, to buy the whole thing cash.
0: Now, do you refinance after that?
1: I did. So that one, um, we actually put $80,000 on top of it into renovations. And that was like building a bigger deck for the view adding a deck for the hot tub, adding a hot tub, air conditioning, um, and then decor and stuff like that. Um, and so, yeah. So afterwards we did raise the value quite a bit and then we, uh, we refinanced and pull the money out.
2: Awesome. So, well, <laughs> we know what you did with it, but, uh, we assume you did a short-term rental, but the next question is what did you do with it?
1: Uh, yeah, so we did, make it a short-term rental. Um, I think the first year it grossed a hundred thousand dollars, um, which is tremendous for, I mean, I was all in at three fifty-five, And after the refinance, we pulled out about $330,000. Um, so I was maybe in it for $20,000 total, um, and grossed about a hundred thousand dollars the first year, which was pretty phenomenal. That's a good cash flow, cash return. Yeah. Remind us where we are. I, I closed June 2020.
0: 2020. Holy cow, man. You made a hundred grand in the first year on yeah. a $20,000 <laughs> that I'd
1: take that ROI. Wasn't too bad. <laughs>
0: Yeah, That's what's funny. Is there was a lot of people in 2020 saying, Oh, the market's going to crash, it's too hot. These prices, I can you believe that someone's paying $250,000 for a cabin? And that cabin's probably, I do you, what, what do you think it's worth right now? I mean, where I'm skipping ahead, but
1: I would, I would maybe say, um, 500 ish. I would, I would imagine. How big is it? Um, it's a little smaller than a thousand square feet, okay? So it's God, pretty small, that's... it's a two one. But it's an A-frame that, you know, the top level is like a really nice bedroom loft A-frame area. What's tricky about
0: short-term rentals is like it. you might look at the traditional metrics like size and sleep count and not expect it to perform well. But it's got something unique about it that makes it stand out on Airbnb and it's at the top of the list and everyone books that little sucker.
1: Well, part of the reason why I loved that cabin in particular, besides it being an A-frame and we kind of fell in love with the style of it, is... It seems like it's remote. We are at the end of a dirt road. When you're there, you feel like you're completely alone. So it's really for couples and small families. And us as a small family, we went up there and we would just have a blast. And you just feel at such a peace. And we decorated it with pretty high end furnishings. So because of that, I think we attract um, you know people from Los Angeles that want better style and are willing to pay for it a little bit more.
0: I look for that as well, especially when I'm in buying cabins. Uh, I don't like it when you look out your window and there's another cabin right next to you or you're sitting in the hot tub and you're looking at the other person sitting in their hot tub. I always skew towards the ones at the end of the road or the elevations different. So you're sitting above the other cabin, there's trees in the way, like you got to look a little bit harder, but I absolutely feel like if you're going to the woods, you want to feel like you're isolated. You don't want to feel like I agree. Up HOA. <laughs> it's part of that experience. So, some of them literally are like track houses, but they're just cabins. They just have, you know, like wood everywhere and like a little bear figurine. Absolutely. But there's they're sitting on like a concrete pad that a bunch of other ones are built on all next to each other. It's the most bizarre thing. I always think this is like what a ghost town is going to look like. Like At some point, they're all going to be vacant. People are going to like, here's a community of homes that no one's lived in for 30 years.
1: Is it a requirement? Well, there, so, and I know this only from production because I've scouted it a couple times and I don't know if it still exists or is like this, but right by LAX, there was a community like of track homes that was abandoned. And so- Literally, it's all these houses. You go to this neighborhood and it's completely empty and you can walk around and it's this weird kind of vibe. And a lot of people do wind up shooting there, uh, filming there. But um, yeah, it it kind of exists. Maybe this was a while ago.
0: All right. My last question, then Henry's got one more. Uh, What lessons did you learn from this deal?
1: Uh, I learned that this was a new market uh, for me in short-term rentals. And what I learned was how to look at the market as an individual market and what to bring to that market versus the other markets. Cause people that visit those markets are different than they've, than that visit the Smoky mountains. And so what I really focused on was making a cabin an experience that really calls towards those guests.
2: And the last question is who was the hero on your team for this deal? It's got to be uh,
1: my wife on this one. I mean, she helped design the cabin and we get so many compliments and people just love it. I mean, it's so comfortable and it's it looks great.
0: Awesome. That's very cool to hear.
1: Remember, you too
0: can find the hero for your next deal and maybe through BiggerPockets. Head on over to the BiggerPockets nav bar on BiggerPockets.com and find all the ways that the BiggerPockets marketplace can help you. All right, Josh, moving on to the last segment of our show. This is the famous four. I'm sure you've heard this before pardon the pun. Famous for... In this segment of the show, we ask every guest the
1: same four questions every episode. Question number one,
0: what is your favorite real estate book?
1: Uh, not to blow you up too much, but I'm going to have to say Long Distance Real Estate Investing by David Green.
0: First time anyone's ever said that. I love it.
2: <laughs> I know that's not true, but <laughs> yes, sure. Awesome. And what is your favorite business book? I haven't written one, so you can't flatter me. I was trying. I looked, I looked, (laughs) um, uh, I'd have
1: to say shoe dog by Phil Knight. I just feel like it's really inspiring and to see a company, how big it is now and where they started and how they struggled and, and how they built up to where they are was really fun to read.
2: Awesome. Thanks. And tell us a little bit about what are your hobbies?
1: Um, I love playing tennis and, uh, I've gotten my whole family into it. The kids started learning. My wife felt like she was going to be left out. So she started learning. So all four of us, uh, play a lot of tennis. And other than that, we like to travel together.
2: Do you play a little mixed doubles as a family?
1: Sometimes she's a little more like I grew up playing, uh, in high school and, and before, so she's a little more self-conscious and, um, we've done it. Um, I keep telling her that, um, she's 100% in her games because we've beaten all the couples that we've played against, <laughs> but we've only played, you know, maybe three nights. So she wants to keep that 100% uh, s- statistic <laughs> She picks going. her opponents very carefully. <laughs> she does. They're not very good. <laughs> Tennis hustlers. All right. <laughs> exactly.
0: Next question. In your opinion, what sets apart successful investors from those who give up, fail, or never get started?
1: I think it's taking action. Um, you know, I've heard so many times while I was learning that your first deal is the most important and it's hard to understand theoretically when you're just learning. But when you put your learnings into action, everything becomes clear and, and you, you start to see, oh, this actually works. This isn't just a theory. So I think you have to take action. So tell us where people can find out more about you. Uh, well, I'm on bigger pockets, obviously. Um, you could follow me on Instagram at bunkhouse worldwide. And we show some of the deals that we're going through and, and some of our cabins and struggles that we go through when we're renovating, maybe. Um, and you could DM me there. Um, also, you could reach out to me at josh at bunkhouseworldwide.com as my email address. And uh, yeah. Yeah. All right. Henry, where can
2: people find out more about you? Best place to find me is on Instagram. I'm at the Henry Washington on
1: Instagram.
0: All right. Josh, this has been fantastic. I appreciate you sharing some time with us. Do you have any last
1: words that you want to share before we get you out of here? Uh, I would just say go out there and do it. What you've learned works and just trust your instincts, trust the numbers and go, go, go
0: that is great advice thank you very much Josh and also thank you for sharing your story with us everybody likes to talk about the success points in their their struggle they don't always like to share the the parts that were not as good but those are very important to hear so props to you for sharing that I appreciate it we're going to get you out of here if you guys would like to follow me I am davidgreen24 on social media and that is the same on YouTube you can now put at davidgreen24 you should find me there All right, this is David Green for Henry the Hulk Washington signing off